welcome back, ladies and gents, to episode number 56 of Bodybuilding Down Under. I am one of your hosts, Lawrence, and I'm here with both Daniels, but no Jack. So DY, DC, they're in the building, but alas, as you would know, Jack is still on holiday. Now, I just wanted to raise something that I feel like the listeners should be aware about. You know, we're a family here at BDU. Families don't keep secrets, and I'm not going to lie, boys. I'm a bit concerned. So there was a bit of a mishap with uploading the podcast and I needed to get Jack to email me some of the details because he's the one that usually does it. So I said, hey, Jack, can you email me the link to Podbean, which is like what we upload, and then the link to Canva, which is like the sort of formatting app that we use to create all our graphics and stuff. But somewhere along the pipeline, he's accidentally sent me his travel itinerary. Now, everything on Tierra Nelson's ticket checked out, you know, flight over to Canada, flight over to England, to Greece, and then back home. But all I saw under Jack Radford Smith was a one-way ticket to Kuwait. So I don't know if he is still grinding on the Canva because the pictures he's posted look extremely well edited like if you didn't have an eye for it like I do you'd probably believe he was actually in those places and then another thing that was a bit of giveaway that he could be heading to oxygen gym for a bit of a you know bit of R&R is that under the part where it said like travel insurance like how much money do you want to allocate towards pharmaceuticals he said all of it so (laughs) I don't know boys am I reading too much into this what do we reckon I don't know. It is a bit fishy, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I what think he's got some explaining to. to do when he gets back from his uh from his trip or trip, mm. quote unquote. Mm. If he hasn't lost at least ten percent lean muscle mass, we'll know something was up. Well, I reckon even if he's maintained, it's it's yeah. suspicious to be honest. For someone of his advancement, he should be atrophying. Yeah, that's why you're practicing that rear naked choke exercise today, just in case he lies to you point blank. Oh, 100%, 100%. I will get the truth out of him. One, that's that's for sure. But yeah, I just, um, I can't help but think that this whole thing was a ruse for him to go spend a few weeks in the Kuwait center of gains and just come back a completely different man. Have you seen how insane that gym is over there though? I can't blame him. Oh, mate, I'm, I'm more concerned by the, uh, like it's pretty much like a bodybuilder's cafeteria. They're just like weigh out all your mo- your food, like weigh out your chicken, weigh out your rice. Unbelievable. Yeah, well, I remember seeing, I think it was like a Louis Marco video ages ago and it was like a walkthrough of the gym and it's like three whole floors. It's like one's like a push. The second floor is like a pull day and then the next one under that's our legs. So I was like, how the, it's like, you can't even shout across the entire gym. It's that like big. I'm like, what? Yeah. Is that the same legit. gym that, um, uh... Brandon Curry was training at. Yeah. So one? yeah, Brandon would go over quite a bit to Kuwait for like his preps and stuff. But like, man, imagine that, like you willing to just like move to another country just so that you can literally be there to bodybuild. Cause like, man, what else is there to do? Like, I mean, in those countries, like clubbing and drinking and stuff isn't allowed. So I don't think there'd be much of a nightlife. Like mm. I literally think those dudes just go and live in this bodybuilding bubble for as many weeks as they can and then come home. 
I'm just looking at like an overview video of um of the floor and it's just like what like six Smith machines or something like that. Oh man, <laughs> like it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It, yeah, it's, it's, heaps. it's got like like two of every machine pretty much, but then it's got like different brands and they just the guy that owns it I apparently is like a, a billionaire and he just pretty much wants the best gym in the world. So he literally just goes to no limits on the gym equipment he just gets it all over from every part of the world all these machines colors them all up to obviously fit within his uh black red like kind of look and yeah it's crazy yeah it's pretty insane man see if uh i wonder if oxygen have put up any stories today see if we can see our boy in the background <laughs> Imagine just he's, see Jack he's there just on all the <laughs> He's running this new new hack squat. He was looking at that Gold's Gym. Ha- Remember the uh, leg press where it's like lying down? You have to climb up like four, oh, four dude. stories. Yeah. Well, that one's like four flights of stairs to get up to the pad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's got the, he's the entire the entire wall up the top of the gym is just like three flat screen TVs that takes up like the entire wall, just yeah. just side by side. That's crazy. Yeah. Mental way. Apparently, they're actually coming to Australia too. I saw someone. Yeah, I have who- heard that. I think it's in like sydney maybe or something like that but there's be... one in brisbane as well really yeah yeah yeah. i saw someone posted like this google earth image of like where the land was going to be and like the land had all been cleared so because i'm pretty sure cam george used to put on his story because i think yeah. cam is like he's in the building industry so i don't know if maybe he was even actually working on the site but i remember he was posting a few things and i asked him where it was going to be i can't recall the suburb but It'll be very interesting to see if it is anything like what the actual oxygen gyms are like, because that would be ridiculous. Yeah, well, within mm. a couple of months of them opening, I'm sure they're going to be hitting our DMs up down at the BDU, you know, full sponsored oh, for sure. access. Yeah. It'll be a, uh, a sponsored show, that's for damn sure. They'll have our podcast room all in there ready to roll. And just like a constant feed of our podcast on the screens, and even the early episodes where there's no visual. Yeah. You need, like those little production. you need like those little scooters what like one of the ones that bk has where like you stand on it and it just like takes you because like those gyms are huge it's like if you train there you're getting 10k steps within that session that's a late day like, hack yeah i'm going catabolic at that stage like i can't have it i need a little moped 100%. scooter yeah especially like if you what 10k 10k steps that's a stretch hey yeah three times <laughs> my standard daily uh, <laughs> right there the other thing, um, well, look, once again, Jack sort of playing up to this whole ruse that he's actually in USA, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, Tierra, we know for sure, was actually eating some moose meat that she put on her story. So I was going to say to you boys, what is the strangest meat you've ever eaten? Uh, I don't mm-hmm. actually think I've eaten anything crazy. I, I think it probably would have been, as far as I can go, it's probably like rabbit or kangaroo. Okay, mm. yeah. I don't know if I've had rabbit, to be honest. I have kangaroo, like, almost every day. But Do I don't you? know if I've had rabbit. Oh, a little bit here and there, mate. Dribble it in. I can't the strange, get around the roo. I think the strangest oh, I love thing the roo. I've eaten... Uh, first thing that comes to mind is just when I was over in Japan, like, when I was much younger, and uh, they were selling, like, sautéed uh, crickets, like, on, on like, corner, corner markets, like, dehydrated flavored with like honey and all these crazy yeah co- condiments and i'm like, and i just remember being a kid my, my parents buying it for me and i'm like i really don't want to eat this but it was it was nice actually it was nice it was crunchy but yeah 
That's they're like lying to you. These are the French fries over here. Oh, they look weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've actually I've eaten quite a fair few like interesting meats. Like obviously kangaroo, I eat all the time. But in South Africa, like the equivalent of kangaroo there was like ostrich. So like we used to eat ostrich a fair bit. And then I remember once it was actually when we went back to South Africa for a trip, we went to this like sort of barbecue house where it was like, you know, sort of authentic South African food. And my cousin and I split this like meat platter and there was just like anything and everything on there. So there was like, like a few different types of antelope and there was crocodile as well. Crocodile is pretty, pretty normal tasting, tastes like chicken, to be honest. So yeah, that's pretty standard. Tastes like chicken. Is that what it does. we're thinking? It is does. It? No, literally crocodile. Mate, there could be it could be some crocodile in your Zingerburgers for all you know. I've been deceived. That's what the crunchy outside is. I just did a quick uh nutab search of crocodile. Is actually in there. Crocodile back leg raw. Crocodile. What the macros tail, like, tail baby. Fillet, tail fillet raw. Which one do we want to look at? The tail fillet? Yeah, I reckon that's what I would have had. Let's do it. Uh, all right. Per 100 grams, 22.5 grams of protein. It's actually not that Ooh. far off, like just straight chicken. Pretty similar, actually. Not there bad. You go. New, new, uh, new, new prep food. Yeah, yeah. I'll see if you I You just got to go out it. and wrestle it yourself. Yeah, yeah. But then you got to say, like, do you track it as Nile crocodile, saltwater, freshwater? You mm. know, these things matter. Mm, for sure. And I was going to ask you boys as well before we get stuck into a few Q&A questions. I've just finished watching like a couple good TV shows. So I was going to see what you guys were watching at the moment. I just finished the Conor McGregor documentary, which I thought was pretty good. And then I'm also watching with my mum at the moment, a TV show on Netflix called Chimp Empire, where it's like a doco series where they follow like a, a family of chimps. And oh, my days, it's fascinating. Hey. I'm trying to search it up. I've got to remember. Um, I was halfway through the Conor McGregor documentary, but um, you're not convincing Lani to watch that. That's for sure. It's like, this is boring. I'm trying to think about what else I've watched recently. Mm, I'm actually finding it hard to, to think of anything. Um, I was watching The Last of Us when that was, that was out uh, oh, okay, yeah. uh, each week, which was awesome because I played the games and they were, they were, they were superb. Um, but there's that we go through times where, especially around like busy times of the year with um with you know comps things like that, we just don't watch as much as much TV as a whole. Or even if the TV we are watching is just like dumb stuff where you just don't really have to even think. So at the moment we're watching Ash versus Evil Dead, the TV series. It's so stupid. It's so over the top and ridiculous. So, but it's just like dumb viewing where you can just watch it and zone out basically. One one that I rewatched recently was uh, Mind Hunter, I believe it is. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but yeah, Mind like, Hunter's great. Yeah, That's I can't believe series. they they disconnected the last season that they were going to make for it. I, I was I love like those serial killer documentary kind of ones, but it's robbed. I'm not sure if they can, like intend on doing another one or not, but I think it was just sort of put on the back burner so that I don't yeah. know because I remember looking it up a while back when we watched it, and I think it was just like. The production just put it on the back burner and then they might get to it at a later point not yeah. really commenting on whether it's going to be uh you know a future season or not which is unfortunate because it was good it was good yeah like is that, that like a like a true crime like a documentary or is it fictional 
it's kind of like a little mixture of both. Like it's like pretty much how like the behavioral science unit like came about. And then what they would do is they would interview like pretty much like serial killers that actually happened and they would try and like pick up like little traits. So then that way they could solve future serial killer crimes and like figure out how they work. And yeah. Mm, during a time where I guess the initial thought was that there were just crazy people in the world and that was, that was that. And then to the point where, Hey, we, we can perhaps use the knowledge that they have. And, and I guess their, their mindsets and, and their psyche to basically, yeah solve future crimes so it's pretty interesting you should watch it man mm, okay yeah that does sound good but it's like all based off like real killers so like the ones that they're interviewing are pretty much all yeah stuff that's happened yeah isn't it interesting how like well those shows do like i watched the one what was the recent one jeffrey Dahmer. like i watched yeah. that but like any sort of like tv show or film or even like the true crime podcasts you know it's just i find it so fascinating how as a society we're so captivated by like the most heinous gruesome of crimes like all that stuff just does so well in like ratings i think it's also because they're so different as well like just how someone thinks at that level to do what they've done that's what i find like extremely interesting like what happened like or what goes incomprehensible, through their mind right it's yeah. like incomprehensible like your your average person your normal person can't comprehend the thoughts involved with someone doing such atrocious things in the world right so it's like how does this person work like how, this is crazy so i guess that's probably the, the allure to to want to watch it I, I know exactly how it goes through i pull up to the gym Someone's on my machine. Lawrence is single leg side hack squatting on my Cybex and I need it. He's done one too many sets. Next thing you know, the whole gym's in a kerfuffle. Mm, Lawrence is taking like a 12 minute rest period just because he's so depleted in prep. Yeah. I've just that was just machine. today during a deload session. Yeah. So, well, speaking of, of murder, D.Y., you, you nearly had me on Sunday. <laughs> nearly that, that was uh, the key i don't word. know if you saw that dc the the hack yeah, yeah. Set. you were seeing stars at one point right oh mate I, I essentially said to dy i was like i messaged him and i was like mate last session before the deload you have permission to just like bury me in the ground so it took the top set took a weight progression happy days like top set still would have been probably like a one rir and then for the back off I think it was the same weight as the week before. And DY was like, oh, like how many reps did you get last week? So I was like, oh, 17. And he said, okay, we're getting 20, which is the top end of the rep range. And however many I need to help you with is however many I need to help you with. But I ended up only taking one assisted, but oh my days, that that rep, I thought my soul was going to leave my body. Mm, well, you, you know you know the intensity you're pushing out where literally like every ounce of your body is just oscillating like shaking oh, dude. shaking elbows are shaking as you're holding on to the hack squat handles like knees are oscillating like, <laughs> like you're i genuinely basically. yeah i genuinely don't i reckon that's probably the hardest i've ever pushed a set like comfortably because I, I can't remember ever like shaking that much on a hack squat that being said it was like that's a hard like a 20 rep hack squat set like with over four plates aside pretty much to absolute failure and then yeah on the i knew he had that last one i was like well it's the last last rep of the set i was like i'm not just gonna give it to him i'm gonna make him work for this so it's just taking off like half a kilo every second as he's just sitting there <laughs> Grin like from... i got you i got you he looks at you you're like you're, you're three steps away from the machine <laughs> yeah 
gets up the top, I pull back the handles and I go five more. And he just yeah. has the Tom Platt flashbacks. He's just having oh. nightmares. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Speaking of Tom Flat, uh, Tom Platt's like some of his videos are crazy, right? Like the guys taking like three, four seconds to lock out the concentric phase, of the hamstring curl. And then he's like five more. And it's just like, what? I can't well, do five more. My hamstring's uh... going to rip off. He seems to be doing the rounds on like reels at the moment. Like I've just seen Tom Platts everywhere. Mm. Yeah. Full circle. It, he was an absolute freak though. He's crazy. I remember, I remember listening to him. He's like only like trained legs like once a week or once every two weeks because it was just that intense. He couldn't recover from it. Like as you can see with Lawrence, he's pretty much going to have to deload three weeks after that one set. Oh, I'll be like deloading of- for the entire three weeks for sure. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like a lot of lot of like coaches these days would look at that sort of intensity with training and just be like stimulus to fatigue ratio, not ideal, and just like yeah. Im- immediately label that as like junk volume or, you know, I I, w- I would think majority of coaches would think that. I, I think there's there's a good premise to that style of training with regards to intensity and just grit and grinding hard and like character building and all those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And I think there's definitely benefit to that. Um, whether everybody needs to train like that to induce results. Um, yeah, I don't think so. But what do you what do you guys think? I don't think many people could train like that, like all out. I just think on the mental side of it as well, like, you know, like when you're doing sets, imagine Lawrence, you rock up to the gym and every single set you perform is exactly like that set, but two to three sets of them, which is what Tom used to do. Like he used to do like two to three sets on most exercises. Like, that's what he would kind of say. So it's like, imagine having to do that level of intensity. Like, whew, you'd, you'd need to be nearly crazy to be able to replicate that level of intensity for every single leg set, for every single upper body set as well, and so on like that. Like, it'd be crazy. And that that's what he did. He, like, he would also go to, like, a psychologist and stuff like that. So then that way he could, like, you know, switch off when he went to the gym. Like, get into a whole different zone. Because, yeah. Otherwise, you would be serial killer. You'd be on mine hunters. <laughs> True. Yeah, I think it's like one of those things. I heard AJ Morris talk about this recently, where it's like the whole stimulus to fatigue ratio is like it's all well and good, and it is certainly a thing. But until you know what hard training is, it's almost irrelevant. Like you could almost say like for the first five years of our training careers, were any of us worrying about stimulus to fatigue ratio? Like, no, we're just trying to learn how to train hard. So I think that like, if you're not sure how to take a set, you know, to a very high intensity, you know, where you are able to with purpose and still with good execution, push to like a one RIR, potentially even failure on some things, like you're probably not even really ready to be thinking about stimulus to fatigue because at that point you just need to keep working on training harder. And then once you start to get to a point where your intensity of training is actually starting to detract from your progress in some sense, that's when we can start to think, okay, is there a movement that would better favor that ratio compared to the one that you're doing? Absolutely. I agree. And I almost feel like, people are really scared of, of failure, like the concept of failure on, on certain exercises as well. Uh, like for example, with, let's say, I know that you, you do like a, a single leg isolateral leg press and, you know, m- most leg presses, you can sort of 
adjust the bottom pin that if you just increase your range by a fraction, it locks off and it stops, right? So let's say even if you took your set to failure, even if you standardize, like if you, given that you standardize your technique, even approaching failure, I think that's a really important piece. Like the worst thing that could happen in that case is that you just don't achieve that rep. The concentric holds, pauses, you go back down and the weight locks off and you get out of the leg press. You know what I mean? But I think people often immediately associate failure with just incre- like immediate injury. And I think that's probably the, the point in which people detract themselves from training that hard is because they're just scared of getting injured. Yeah, and speaking of isolateral leg presses, I'm still running the Watson, and mate, it's so good. It is honestly like great, one of right? my favorite yeah. pieces. Like I've been running I, it since I started training at uh, Powerhouse. Like so, it's been months, months, and months now. It's so good. Yeah, and it's if anything, it's it's starting to feel better as I keep going. Like I don't know if you find this, but like I almost need that first loading set to just like stretch my groin out, and then the second loading set feels better than the first one just in terms of like mobility and then the back offset feels great but yeah it's i've run it for two blocks already and i'm gonna run it for the third because you know if i can keep something like that in for the majority of prep and it keeps feeling good you know it's just such a great movement such a great machine yeah and i'd almost argue that in prep you're probably better off to just stick with a very similar exercise selection that that yields a fantastic workout for you because you know, I think towards the later aspects of prep, there's probably more concern with regards to vastly changing your exercise selection and having a bit of like an intro week and a, a period of acclimation where you're trying to figure out the appropriate load to use. Like you can't really afford to have too many weeks like that in prep because it's a finite number between you get, you know, now and jumping on stage, you want to ensure that you get as much stimulus within that time frame as possible, really. Speaking of the single leg, though, what about the single arm preacher today, Lawrence? He was talking smack last oh. week. He was saying, no preacher. And I said, jump over here, mate. And now look at him. He, he said, I've got to sub out all bicep movements, 10 sets of single arm preacher going forward. Yeah. What are we Papa using? don't what? preach. I'm a in trouble. load, a dumbbell? Oh, I well, you, on... dis- you discovered it, DY, so you talk about it, mate. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> I used to do like a double arm preacher on it. It felt quite garbage. So I was like, you know, I'll give it a single arm on the life fitness machine it's like a plate loaded version yeah it just feels really really good very smooth and like as lawrence alluded to today is just really feel it in that stretch position which he was fully aroused by yeah the uh, i mean you know me boys like i'm very much considering changing my personal podcast's name to the general long muscle length podcast because (laughs) uh, you know i love those length and partials baby yeah I'm a sucker. Big range of motion has got to me. General stretch mediated muscle here. Yeah, exactly. But no, all jokes aside, I still stand by what I say. Like, because I have tried that machine for double arm and it doesn't feel good. But single arm, it feels fantastic. And I I do like that a little bit in my deload weeks where I sort of, you know, I'll keep, I'll stick to my plan, but I will try out a few things. Like almost say like, you know, you get to audition a few machines and see if you want to include it in your proper, proper week. But I was actually going to ask you boys this today because um, I know I'm going through my deload at the moment and I just want to hear what you guys do for your deloads when you plan them in. Are you more reactive? Are you more planned? So I might go over to you first, DC. Yeah. Good question, man. I, I tend to deload a little bit more reactively with myself and, and, and my athletes. 
just because I find that often when an athlete reports when they're fatigued doesn't always tend to align exactly with where a pre-planned deload may sit. So, you know, if I, if I planned a deload at the end of the sixth week of a training block, because I tend to write six week lots of, of, of training blocks, I might be deloading someone who may not really need it at that point. Whereas if I'm checking in with that person every single week, I can sort of forecast when a deload may be due just based on getting their biofeedback markers each week and having conversations with them around their training performance. What are their numbers looking like? What is their energy, mood, motivation, and all that sort of stuff approaching their sessions? And uh, usually that is enough to inform me on when, when one's due. Uh, and some individuals can go 12 weeks without one. Some individuals need one every sixth week and some people need them every eighth week. Sometimes it oscillates. So sometimes, for example, someone who I've got a couple of uh, athletes at the moment that are more shift workers. So having to schedule a training deload might align more so with when they're transitioning their shifts from day shifts into night shifts, you know, and vice versa. So it's just, it's really just individualized to the athlete, but I personally like to import uh, more reactively deloads. And I guess the deload strategy as a whole differs as well. So I would say, uh, you know, traditional deload would be a reduction in, in load. Let's say you re reduce load by 25% across, you know, most of your movements, depending on how fatigued that, that person is, you could also coincide that with a reduction working set as well. So it could be, you know, take one set off uh, coinciding with a 25% reduction in, in load. Uh, I am also fond of implementing like intro weeks within a program as well. So perhaps the first week of a, of a, of a training block utilizes slightly less volume with matched intensity. And then from week two onwards within a block sort of acclimated to the movement selection, we can increase volume a little bit, perhaps more so on, on our less fatiguing movements. So I think there's a few strategies in, in you know, at hand that we can utilize to, to, to manage the recoverability of the individual, but when those implement is really just where that person is up to. Yeah, I normally have mine in pretty much set as either a week seven or week six in their program, depending on how well I know the individual. But that being said, if they're still making very nice progress, I'll just more or less push it back. So I have it in there like set as like week seven, but then I'll ask them on like week five or week six, how's the progress going? Like, are you feeling good? Uh, any of these markers like, may be affected and if they're not then i'll just be like all right perfect let's push the week back and then i'll just like copy in another week into their training program maybe make some alterations here or there but i pretty much have them like set on like six hard training weeks and maybe a seventh but like i said it's if they're if they're feeling amazing if the training performance is going really nicely everything's going up and all the biomarkers are also in a good little spot i'll just somewhat continue it um maybe might make some slight alterations to the program but other than that um it's pretty smooth and in terms of the way i normally like to go about my deloads i've pretty much probably got like three main ones which one is 75 percent on all lifts you know just working at the top rep range so if it might be like eight to ten reps on in their program i'll say go to the 10 rep mark and maybe use 25 percent um just feels good give them a good pump um yet they're still touching significant weight another one is one hard set and one 75 percent set so if they're doing three three sets across the majority of their program i'll get them to reduce one of the sets but then they can still use some of the heavy load while also backing it off so at least they can still touch some decent weight a lot of them sometimes it's hard for them to psychologically be like oh i'm going to take a whole week like where it's super easy. So I like, all right, have one hard set on all the exercises, 
have one back offset and then you know we'll take one of the sets out and see how you go there and then another one i don't normally use it too much but maybe like three of the five days of training so if they might be on like a push pull legs upper lower i'll be like run the push pull legs take it slightly easier maybe leave a couple of reps in the tank and then you know they get an additional like 40 percent rest time compared to what they would normally have yeah that last approach is sort of what i've found myself too um because i used to do like the just 70 percent across the board still go in for all the sessions but then i was like oh like i'm these sessions sometimes almost take still quite a long time and they're boring so then i played around with the idea of like oh well then do i maybe just drop overall volume but i do think there is something to be said for like certain movements just being very psychologically fatiguing so you know for me still having to get up for an rdl or a hack squat is probably not a proper deload for me because I'm still having to get arousal quite high. So I found like, uh, you know, removing anything that is going to cause high amounts of psychological um, or like sort of joint stress or niggles or anything like that. So no movements like that in the block. So it's essentially just ends up being two upper sessions and one lower session where I just do machines slash things that are feeling really good. And then normally I'll just reduce the loads to say the the weights that I was using in like week five of that block. So, you know, at that point, it's probably more sitting around like an RP eight or something like that. Obviously things like arms and delts, like you can still train just as hard, um, but it's just a slight reduction in intensity. And I, for one, find psychologically that having those two extra rest days across the week and just having two extra days where you can relax a bit more and you're not having to go to the gym. I really look forward to that on the deload weeks, like just being able to chill out a little bit more. Um, so I think that can go a long way in terms of, you know, just managing that psychological and mental fatigue for, to then gear up for another block. Absolutely. I think deloading in a contest prep is a little bit of a different ball game. Do you guys agree? Because I feel like towards the tail end of prep, you know, in the final, let's say eight weeks, left until you're on stage i mean at that point you could almost report the need for a deload every week right like at this point we're absolutely dragging ass like it's it sucks you know towards the later aspects of prep in regards to energy and it takes a whole lot more effort to replicate the same intensity within a workout but it's just as important if not more important to train hard in those in those moments to retain that lean tissue and that's where I think you just have to, from a mental perspective, take yourself to a place where it's like, you know, do or die sort of sort of thing mentality, as extreme as that seems. And, you know, we all laugh about the whole like going to war, like that sort of concept with regards to, you know, prep as a whole. But there are some points where you have to dig deep, right? And we can all, you know, attest to that, the places in prep where things are just damn hard, but it, you just need to to struggle through it and, and grit through it. And um, yeah, I, I feel like, the strategy surrounding deloads at that point is probably a little bit different. You know, maybe it's it's less of implementing full deloads with respect to reduction in load and and things like that. And maybe it's more about just mitigating fatigue from 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 a program design perspective. So, you know, swapping exercises that perhaps yield a massive degree of fatigue that carries over to other movements within the session that impacts your ability to perhaps get a great stimulus from those maybe it is swapping an exercise out. If it was a traditional you know, deadlift to begin with, and that's just absolutely the pits, like you feel as though it's not directing great tension to those hamstrings, et cetera. 
then perhaps it might be viable to change it to a Romanian deadlift instead. You know, that that's probably more of the strategy in place because, you know, I'd argue if you if you're really reducing volume and load towards the later components, like you might be running into the risk of of atrophy, particularly when calories get low and body fat is exceptionally low as well. Yeah, I reckon on the back end of contest prep, it is yeah, like like you said, it's a completely different ball game because at the same time, you don't want to make it so easy. Um, so even like stuff like what you mentioned, maybe doing a deload on certain lifts, but then having other lifts, maybe like isolated exercise, like leg extensions still at full-blown intensity could be somewhat good. One thing I am a big fan of though in the back end of contest prep is pretty much having like the deload set in like every five or six weeks or whatever it might be. I think just as a competitor, if you're just pushing so hard and you're like, fuck, is a deload coming? Is it coming? Like if I already have them set in place um, and I've, if I've worked with a client for a long time, I pretty much already know where they're roughly going to need that deload anyway. It's kind of like what you and um, BK talk about and like the, in terms of like that push and pull in terms of carbohydrates, but then also doing that with the training as well. Like, all right, we've got five weeks. Let's fucking send it. Like we'll get that one week where we can back it off a touch, you know, keep a little bit of the lifts here and there to try and maintain as much muscle as possible. But then we're back into action. Um, Cause if like, if you were just pretty much taking reactive deloads every time you're feeling rough, it'd be every, every second week you'd be running a deload. So by having them pre-planned in, I think somewhat good. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And, and then also you always... buy that. Sorry. You no, go. you go, mate. I was going to say, hopefully at that point, you know, you're not, behind time that that you can start to implement some strategies to to do exactly what you know what we say like what you said give back to the system right so hopefully within a contest prep timeline towards the back end of the prep you've got a little bit more strategies up your sleeve to implement you know an additional refeed day or you know things like that where they're often needed you know towards the the tail end i think particularly as a means of getting more of an understanding how to peak an athlete, but also just as a means of slowing down rate of loss and just mitigating fatigue at that point as well. So I would almost prefer to hold back on those recovery strategies until later down in, into the prep, as opposed to like implement a refeed at the first week of a, a contest prep phase. Like I'm not really someone who implements a refeed from day one in a prep for, for all athletes. Some I will, depending on their starting position, but you know, you're one week into a diet. Are you really feeling diet fatigue at that point? Hopefully not. I mean, if you are, you know, uh, yeah. it's going to get a bit harder, but, you know, we, we can use those strategies a little bit down, you know, towards the tail end, I think is important. Yeah, definitely more heavy on the back end. I, I honestly can't remember the time where I've really had probably a high day within maybe the first 10 weeks. If a prep's 30 weeks long, damn, that would have to be looking very conditioned at like 20 weeks out to be warranting like a diet break or like anything where you're having like multiple high carb days. I don't know, like what, like what you boys have done, like, you know, push decently hard for the first 10 weeks, get a good hunk of it off. And then like what you've done, Lawrence, like once you've done a bit of the hard yards, you know, start giving back a little bit and then going from there. Yeah, for sure. And the last thing I'll just say on deloads is like, you know, as a competitor, you hit that point where your peak weeks become almost a bit of a pseudo deload because you're probably only getting in like one or two hard sessions at the start of the week and then it's sort of pumpy stuff from there so like for myself if I sort of think it through okay about 13 weeks out now so train hard for six weeks then probably take one more deload and that's probably going to be my last deload of the prep because then it's going to be you know, right into shows and then between shows and, and, you know, the training at that time is pretty much all over the place. You're not really stringing in 
weeks in a row of hard training. So I think you do get to that point where, you know, the deloads are just, you almost can't afford to take them because when you have an opportunity to go in and train hard, you need to take that. So that's probably just one other thing to consider. But we did have a uh, a good question about, um, you know, the post-contest rebound for naturals. So does it exist, I guess, is the is the question because we hear a lot about, you know, this post-show rebound, especially from the enhanced crowd. You know, you hear about, oh, you know, that's your chance to rebound out of the show and put on some good quality tissue. But it's a bit of a different ball game for the the natties. So DC, what do you think about this post-show rebound? Yeah, I mean, are we are we talking about a rebound specific to like a rebound of, of fat mass? Are we talking about, I mean, some I think would look at it as a muscle. period of, yeah, okay. So I guess some people would look at it from the perspective of, I've just depleted. Now I'm pushing food in and my potential to grow mass is, is like amazing from the get-go. Um, I mean, I, I would say that through the initial aspects of the recovery phase, let's say in the first one to, let's say first one to six weeks, at that point, yes, you're putting on fat mass a whole lot quicker, but I would say your reproductive system is pretty taxed at that point. And uh, there's been a few sort of uh, studies that look at, you know, hormonal regulation post, post show. And some athletes don't return to homeostasis until like months post show. So the whole concept of like immediately increasing lean tissue, like weeks out from the show, to, truthfully, I think is pretty low at that point. That, that extra nutrients coming in is being partitioned towards an increase in fat mass and a, rest- a restoration of homeostasis. And I think, and homeostasis from the perspective of, you know, normal metabolic health, respiratory rate starting to come up again, heart rate returning back to what would be considered normal, you know, walking around under 40, be- 40 beats per minute is certainly not normal. And, and athletes get to that, that stage in prep. Uh, the, the proclivity of putting muscle mass on within the first month, I think is pre- pretty low. And I mean, it's all respective to how lean you had to get in the first place, right? So someone, a male bodybuilder who got to ridiculous levels of conditioning, uh, there's going to be that rubber band effect. But you stretch that band, it's going to come and recoil you. So, you know, I wouldn't say you're probably putting on lean tissue for a few months post-show, I think. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like hormonally, like even like when, like, for example, when Jack got his test levels done, like post-show, like how down in the dumps they were, like how are you going to put on a significant amount of muscle mass, like post-show when everything is just down-regulated so hard? Um, And then even if you're talking about a rebound and let's say you did gain like a little bit of muscle in that initial six weeks, it's going to be nothing compared to what you're going to be gaining in peak off-season. Like, you know, you're going to be, operating at on a whole nother level in like the peak off season and then you know the initial six weeks post show a lot of it's just going to probably be muscle glycogen and body fat you may look like you're gaining shit loads of muscle but realistically uh it's probably not going to be anywhere near as much as what you would expect yeah and i sort of say this to people where it's like just think about it from a physiological perspective or like you know if we just sort of say that a human was operated like an animal in the wild. So if you were at that level of body fat percentage, we know that muscle is more metabolically expensive to keep running when it comes to calorie burn, like in in a simplistic way of, of saying, than fat mass. So, you know, when the body is already at a point where 
it has very little body fat to spare. It's not getting enough calories overall. It would make no sense for its first thing to do is to gain more tissue that costs it more calories to keep it on. So, you know, your body at that point wants to gain fat more than anything. So it really just would not physiologically make sense for you to be in a good position to gain muscle. So when you break it down like that, unfortunately, that sort of post-show rebound for natural athletes just does not really exist when it comes to potentiating lean mass gain. Mm. And like, if you look at it from the perspective of women losing their menstrual cycle, I mean, it doesn't seem feasible for the body to continue to be in an optimal state of reproductive health, meaning that I have the ability to bear a child when I don't have the ability to actually feed myself in terms of calorie intake. So that's why these, these processes switch off and you know, the body doesn't need to have uh, you know, a normal menstrual cycle. This just doesn't have the energy for it. It's not a priority. The priority is basically uh, maintaining life at that point, right? Breathing rates, heart rates, blood pressure, like these sorts of things are more important. And, uh, and so certainly I think in terms of like a point of hierarchy through the initial return of, of energy availability, like your body's going to partition that to the things that are important to it. Just like you said, not towards, you know, increasing lean tissue and pushing your bench up by 10 kilos, something like that. Eventually it will, but like not in the first few months, I think first couple of months. And like I said, I say a few months as like a, a blanket term, like it's it's going to be so dependent on the individual, right? How the lean they got, what their calor- calories got to, this the the stress state of that individual. I mean, some women don't see their, a return to their menstrual cycle for six months, seven months post show. Uh, are they are they putting on some lean muscle within that lean muscle within that time frame? Probably, yeah, I think so. So not everything returns to the same uh, like stages as as everybody. Yeah. And uh, DY, you can crack into the next one, mate. So it says, are two sets of six to 12 reps until you can't move the weight anymore enough for hypertrophy? This is interesting because if I was to ask Jordan Peters this, I'd probably say, yeah, it would be. That's too much, too much volume. Yeah. Is that per week? (laughs) Yeah, it depends if this is (laughs) per week because a lot of the stuff that I've seen is to pretty much get hypertrophy anywhere from four to eight sets. It's probably a good spot to be like on the very bottom end of it. So I don't think if it was a normal gym goer that, you know, was training quite hard, I don't think you're going to be growing on two sets. It's probably around about more or less that maintenance volume. If you were probably somewhere in like that four to eight sets is probably where you're going to start seeing some decent little changes. And then obviously like, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 is probably like that optimal range or that sweet spot where a lot of people talk about, but two hard sets like i said unless you're probably jordan peters or something like that which trains with like astronomical amounts of intensity even then i don't even know if he would be growing on two sets i'd probably be more or less maintenance and it also depends on like the intensity what exercises you're choosing like you know are they leg extensions or are they two sets of like a barbell deadlift are they hack squats so um it would be very individual specific and i guess exercise slash intensity based yeah, I agree. And I think maybe if the question asker is asking it from another perspective, just to play the other side here of like, what if it's say a leg press and I only want to do two sets? Like, is that enough work for a set exercise? And once again, like it sort of comes back down to more so the total volume, isn't it? Like 
DY and I were talking today about, you know, eventually for some of my exercises across prep, I'll probably reduce them to one working set, but that's because I've got other sets of similar muscle group type exercises in the program. So, you know, if you were even like two sets per muscle group per session, depending on your frequency, like if you were running a standard like push-pull leg frequency, like even that's probably on the lower side because let's say you do two sets of quads per session and then later that week you're doing that again. So you're only hitting a total of of four sets for the week. Like that's pretty low. Um, There's not going to be too many people that can grow on that. But if you're asking whether or not you know, two sets in terms of one exercise is enough, then I think it definitely can be like, there's the the three sets is what gets commonly thrown around. And for a lot of people, it's going to be perfectly appropriate. But, you know, if you were taking sort of that top or back set approach, there's nothing wrong with that. Like you can do two sets of something and it'd be fine. You could do one set of something. It just depends on how you structure that within your overall program and your overall volume. Hmm. Completely agree. I also feel like it would somewhat limit you with with such low volumes in terms of growing uh, certain muscle groups to its full capacity. So for example, like back training, right? I mean, I feel like you're going to build the most profound back when you have the ability to pull from a few different angles. And uh, if you're only running like four sets within the entirety of the week, it probably limits you with respect to ample volumes as to which tissue you can bias of the back. So you know, that there could be that argument as well. Do you think DC that you could grow a muscle group off two sets for the entire week though yourself? No, I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. Cause like when I think about it myself, I'm like, I don't think two sets of nearly any exercise, like I'd be able to grow off a week. That being said, I haven't tried it, but I also wouldn't be game enough to try it. I don't think, I don't think the benefits would outweigh something like, you know, even like being in that four to eight set range, I'd much rather be in that range than I would be on two hard sets to complete mm. value even. Mm. I think it's also respective to the, to, to the person's sort of baseline volume as well. Like mm. if, if we're talking to someone who has never trained in the gym before and you introduce two sets of calves, like into the equation that initially is going to create insane doms for that individual because they're not, they've just now trained the cars before not correlating doms to an increase in lean tissue, but just with regards to how abstract that is of a stimulus for that individual. And so likely if that person was to run two sets for weeks after there, they're probably going to see some increase to, you know, to, to muscle mass. It's kind of like where some individuals will pursue uh, like an increase in physical activity via increase in steps and walking and things like that, who are very undertrained and you see an increase in lean tissue as a result. The stimulus is not that great, but it's great relative to it, to their baseline, but specifically to a bodybuilder, like in talking to our audience, I don't think two sets is sufficient enough for, for most individuals, if not like 99%. <laughs> Yeah. And then, you know, it comes back to like the stimulus to fatigue argument, because if you are only doing two sets, like you imagine the level of intensity you would need to take those two and then the level of overall fatigue that that would create. And then it's like the rest of your session is probably going to be garbage anyway. So, you know, that's why the recent study that came out on training to failure, it's important to not just look at it in a vacuum where we go, oh, you know, the, the research shows that, training to failure is more stimulatory. Awesome. That means we should train to failure. It's like, well, 
we need to think about that in the broader scope of a program because I think a lot of us are on the same page where it's like the reason we're not taking every single set to failure is because we know that we're probably then going to get halfway through our workout and be absolutely trashed. So you need to consider that, you know, taking that first set to failure, you're going to need to do a set an hour and a half later for most people, two hours later for some people, and you still need to be reasonably fresh. So you need to weigh up like how hard you are pushing and consider that within your entire session and then within your entire week as well. So, you know, these things don't operate in a vacuum. My argument to that would be though, if you're only doing two sets, I don't even think you would ever need a deload. If you're doing two sets for every single muscle group across the entirety of the week, I don't think it would be enough sets in total. Cause what would that be? That would be sub 20 sets for the entire body nearly. I don't think you'd ever probably need a deload from that. But that being said, also, I don't think you would, as an advanced trainee, you probably also wouldn't get enough stimulus after maybe a couple of weeks to keep on progressing, like off two sets. Mm, I feel like it depends on what your volume capacity is as well. Like some individuals who just run very, very low volumes across everything, and that's just what their body is acclimated to. Maybe they still require a deload because they haven't yeah. had that point of acclimation where they've actually pushed their volumes up over time to ha- to handle more volumes. Whereas, like us, for example, we train more than two sets per muscle, so that just seems like not much at all, you know. And so the, the yeah. likeliness of us needing to deload from that is pretty low. Like I'm not deloading off two sets, but I mean, some if so- someone out there might be. <laughs> Yeah, and once again, I suppose it depends on whether or not you're needing that deload for like physical or it could be psychological as well. We're just like, oh man, I I can't go in for these crazy two sets that I need to just be balls to the wall for. So yeah, no, it's a good question though. And I think that, you know, the low volume approach has definitely made a bit of a resurgence probably in the last 10 years or so where like the, the hit style training is coming back. But I think that, you know, the main thing is don't just look session to session. Like you need to look across the whole week and, and consider how it's going to affect you. Beautiful. That's All right, cool. boys. Well, we've got one more question. So thought we would just go through like what a, a normal day on your plate looks like. This was DY's idea before you've all worried that I've descended into my only food-based questions for contest prep. But uh, yeah, DC, why don't you start us off? Yeah, sure. So in the morning, I'm usually having either, or at these days, it's usually been like oats. Um, if I'm really short on time, I'll usually have like a shake and some like a Carmen bar or two and uh, and just like a Yopro pouch, depending on if I'm very, very busy and just need to. about to, to say get... Milo there. And then no, oh, no, no. we're being sold out. <laughs> uh, usually lunch, I'll either have like, I mean, I'll usually have something like eggs on toast with some fruit on the side. And I'll usually snack on just some um, rice cakes and tuna and things like that. And then usually in the evenings where Nicole and I tend to eat together. So we'll either have like a stir fry, a pasta. Sometimes we'll make homemade nachos. Like we'll just kind of change it up depending on how we're feeling. In terms of mine, it would probably be like every day I keep the same pre-workout meal, which would be like cream or rice um with some fruit and then it'll be like intra workout i'll pretty much come home it'd be like chicken veggies rice yo pro in the afternoon with some more fruit dinner will be like either like a pasta or pizza um homemade of course 
uh, and then it would be like a protein shake before I go to bed. So that's not, that's not what your Uber Eats says. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't ask my accountant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you do that, have the cream of rice, DY. How do you I, make it? What do you I, use? I subbed, I subbed back to it. I use the rice flour and I just pretty much make it on, on the stove top each morning. My dog's trying to jump off on my lap. But um, yeah, and then I normally have like raspberries, uh, choc protein in there and stuff like that before I yeah, train. I, I went back to it. I, it digested really nice. It's a good way where I can get a large amount of carbohydrates in pre-training and it ticked all the boxes. Um, the only reason I swapped to Milo and protein was because I was getting lazy. <laughs> Yeah, no, that is fair. I did get sick of like actually making it for a while, but yeah, I'm pretty similar. Like pre-workout meal will always pretty much be like the cream of rice and whey. I've, I've fallen off the, the whey in cereal, to be honest, but I think that once I feel like chewing something a bit more substantially, like in prep, I'll probably go back to like the whey in cereal pre-workout. Um, but then this guy, DC, he's sitting here. I would keep way in pro way in cereal in the entire prep and never gets dropped out. Now look at him 16 weeks out. He's fucking having oats through a fucking drip. You know, I saw him cooking them at the, in front of the cable crossover today. He had like one of those little stove stove tops. He's like, man, I've got to get these oats in like fullness. Little jar, little uh, little tub of sugar-free maple on the side as well. Oh, dear. Yeah, oats, yeah, o- overnight oats in a mason jar in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you probably oh, yeah. there probably has been someone do that for sure. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, 100 percent. I'm just yeah, waiting but... for the zucchini, the zucchini oats to 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 come out. Is do you reckon you'd go to that place where you'd put zucchini in your oats? Nah, never. Uh, never I never place. did. It. I never did. I'll have either. zucchini like in a, like as part of some veg, but I don't think I'm ever putting it in oats. Unfortunately, I probably don't ever have to get to the point where my calories get that low. But mm. yeah, nah. Zucchini, cream of rice, anyone? Maybe? Let's go. <laughs> Cauliflower in the Ooh. cream of rice. Mm. Um, but no, I normally, outside of that, I'll have like probably at least one meal where I have like either like canned tuna with cottage cheese or just cottage cheese on its own, like with some rice cakes or like with some toast. Um, and then dinner is always pretty much the same. Like I'll have all six servings of veg with generally like some sort of kangaroo and then some rice. the The rice portions are slowly dwindling down, but it's still it's still something. And then I'll normally have um, similar to UDY. I normally have like a protein feeding before bed, and it just sort of depends. Like if I'm if I've got like bulk protein from like dinner, like I might just cook double portion of the meat and then just leave the half of it for pre bed, and I'll just eat that pre bed. Or sometimes cottage cheese yo pro or like a, a whey shake something like that so you're mm. sitting there eating a bit of roux pre-bed <laughs> Mate, it happens. Saved, a li- saved a little bit of roux just 100 grams of just <laughs> kangaroo nothing else bit of ketchup yeah, yeah it's so it small it. that there's no point in even eating it on a plate he's just sitting on his bed <laughs> roux, roux in hand just ripping at it <laughs> a savage oh, do you prefer dear. the kangaroo over like beef mints or something though yeah, to be fair, I haven't eaten beef like consistently. Like uh, a while back, just to reduce my meat intake, I was thought, okay, the only red meat I'm gonna have is kangaroo. I'll still eat like pork and beef products. Like if I'm at a restaurant, for example, like I'll I'll eat it, but I don't like cook it for myself. Um, so it's pretty rare. So I haven't like like 
prepared a beef product for myself in a very long time. But man, the kangaroo, it's it's unreal, man. Super mm, low I, fat. I go through very high phases. protein. I go through phases where I'll uh, I'll bring the kangaroo into rotation. You know what I've been enjoying a lot lately for for dinners is like gnocchi. Gnocchi's yeah. great. Oh yeah, gnocchi's really tough. Good. Yeah, yeah. So mm. just doing a bit of like a, a pasta, red pasta sauce with some gnocchi and beef mince and some vegetables like that goes down really well. Yeah. See, I I normally get like a rump steak for my red meat serving instead of like kangaroo or mince. So I normally alternate it probably like every second day I might have like, I'll just get like a kilo rump and I'll just divvy it up across the week. And that's, so I've, I've never had to scoop to the roux too much. I, I had it once in prep, weight went up one and a half kilos the next day. I said, nah, this fucking roux's bitten back. I'm out of here. <laughs> the roux strikes back. Yeah, the roux strikes back. Yeah, GI no, it's happy. But it's good because it like, they make it in several different forms. So they'll got have like the diced little kangaroo, which I guess would just be like the stir fry. Then there's the mince meatballs, kanga bangers. You're missing out on the kanga bangers, mate. They are unreal. I'm sure the sodium oh, is just unbelievable, no. but I mean, relative to like 50. a normal a normal sausage, I think they're they're better. They're better tasting. Like they're good sausage. Like they're most, good snags. Most traditional snags are just like gross. I don't know. A couple snags she, behind your shoulder there, D.Y. Yeah. Sheena's ruined it for me when she cooks her sausages every day for prep. Every time I see a story, I'm like, oh, God. I just can't eat a roux snag ever again. They look so bad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've gone the roux at breakfast. That might be the next level. I think it was roux boiled in a little bit of water in the microwave. Boiled. Cabbage Ooh. or something. I was like, ugh. Yeah, you, you can't be boiling the roux. Let's be yeah. honest. Yeah, the roux boiling any dead. meat. No, nah, you know you're doing it tough in prep where you break out the bassa fillet. <laughs> I, I did is, it a couple uh, of times prep. just for a little bit of a mix-up. Like I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, I haven't had fish in ages. I'm like, throw a little bit in there, thin thin the skin as well. So just wish Christmas we could heat. get tilapia in, uh, yeah. in Australia. Tilapia. <laughs> yeah. I, that's why I've got that soft bum whenever I get on stage, man. It's just it, limited tilapia over here. Yeah, thick skin. Skin <laughs> is way too thick. Mm. Oh, well, boys, that's been a, uh, a tremendous... Whoa, 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 whoa. Oy. What's Jack's plate? Like, what's that oh, man yeah. eat? Yeah, like, what, what, what do you think he's got on his plate for brekkie, DC? Mm. It's got to be cream of wheat right yeah 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 four but, meals a day is that right extra yeah. metamucil yeah yeah yeah, yeah. psyllium husk like yeah. at least 20 oh, yeah. grams just sprinkled over the top absolutely That's zero it. milk choc on there as well it's either dark choc or some purified almond butter or something surely yeah marmadukes use code jack mm. for sure yeah and then post-workout's got to be two and a half kilo cement shake yep. yeah yeah <laughs> With actual cement granules in there too, just to get yeah. the calories in. Maybe so, yeah, it would go oats as well. Yeah, oats, pumpkin seeds, milk, honey, berries, a Ford Focus, a DVD, you know, just anything he can get in there. Anything mm. he can get in there. Mm. Yeah. What would what would the dinner be though? Like roux? He's gonna Mate, he, lo- he loves the root. He loves no, it. it's yeah. gonna be it's gonna be fish caught from the day. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, great call, Flathead, mm. the dog. 
Who loves a dog? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was no there was, there was no fish out in the sea that, that day. What yeah. what would be what would be the carbohydrate source with that fish though? Pumpkin. Pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, gotta get the fiber up there. He loves his fiber. It's a hundred yeah. a day. I remember when he told me that he was eating like a hundred a day. I was a hundred a day fiber. Mate, be he's shitting up on... at that point. <laughs> Unbelievable. AJ had to pull him pull him up. Go and call me. <laughs> Hey, we can't that, have your fiber. 50. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and then pre-bed. Mm. It's got to be a protein source, whatever it takes. Mm. Like I reckon Jack doesn't doesn't crumb his chicken with like, you know, Kellogg's or anything like that. You know, cr- cr- proper breadcrumbs. It's just straight psyllium husk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And, he, and whenever he like uh, air fries it, he probably like puts it in like wheat flour as well instead of like corn flour to make it crispy. Just mm. extra wheat flour on top of that baddie. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I completely agree. Well, and I'm sure he's sticking to his meals while he's over there. You know, how bad does he want it? Yeah. Saw him boarding with like in the overhead luggage, two and a half kilos of uh, cement granules. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, so what is all of this? <laughs> You've dropped white powder everywhere. Oh, no, no. It's not what you think. It's actually cement for the shake. <laughs> ah, perfect. Oh, what, dear. What's in this other bag? Oh, an industrial size blender. Ah, yeah, perfect. <laughs> ma'am, ma'am, this is Tierra going through. Ma'am, you cannot bring a microwave on an international flight. I can see it underneath your arm. <laughs> in like oh, a little carry-on bag, like a little little purse. You've taken out the laptop out of the work bag. Just got a microwave. Hopefully they don't notice. Nah, they won't notice. They won't mm. notice. But yes, well, it'll only be a couple of weeks. I think it's maybe two more episodes without the great man. And then he'll be back where we'll, we'll just do a big deep deep dive on his trip, get the full download, um, which look, he'll probably try spin the, oh yeah, America was great. Europe was great, but we'll know. We'll know. It'll take one look at that neck and then we'll know. (laughs) All right, boys. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Ladies and gents, thank you for tuning in to another episode of BDU. We'll be back next week with another episode of this great podcast and we will catch you then. (laughs) 